Uh, welcome to episode nine of Using AI, where we will be discussing AI and politics and perhaps a future where we have, get this, AI-assisted political parties. Oh wait, we've already had that uh, with Brexit and recent US elections, but we'll probably not go into that too much. Uh, I think what we mean to talk about is true AI political parties and AI politicians themselves. Uh, I'm your host, Alex Den, and in a wild return of normal events, we have ML research scientist Alex papadopoulos Corfiatis and AI founder Rafi Farouk. Welcome both. Hello. Welcome to me. Right. So, news from the week. First segment. Jan LeCun. Let's talk about him. Yeah, so Jan LeCun is one of three godfathers of AI. Unfortunately, there are no godmothers of AI. Um, but... He says that uh, AI won't destroy jobs for jobs forever. And if you've been following his LinkedIn, he occasionally posts kind of half a sentence messages about how uh, AI is not scary. It's not going to take over the world. It's not going to destroy jobs. Um, and in fact, he says that fears of AI posing a threat to humanity were preposterously ridiculous. Um, I have to say, when I have read his social media posts, he doesn't go into too much detail um keeping with being a very technical person and one does wonder whether he has much training in the social sciences um so yeah i'm just a bit skeptical whether he you know, obviously he understands more about ai than almost anyone on the planet and i remember he became particularly famous because he created uh i believe he created the mnist data set which is the first big data set a neural net could train on and that created the first kind of big image neural nets that achieved far past human accuracy um but as i say i don't know if he really thinks beyond the social implications very well um but he says that intelligent computers would create a new a new renaissance for humanity what do you guys think i think you're completely right that not just him, but also the other two godfathers that we talked about in previous episodes. Um, they're experts in computer science. That does not mean that they're experts in uh, trying to see how specific technology will will change society, right? So whatever they say on that probably should be taken with a grain of salt. They might understand the capabilities of, uh, of AI better than other people, but then thinking through the implications of those capabilities for human society. I'm sure there's uh, there's people that uh, that have much better takes on that and a much better understanding. I did not know that uh, the Amnesty data set was uh, Jan LeCun's though. That's the like data set of handwritten digits, right? Yeah, it was that point where neural nets were becoming big because of compute power, but there still wasn't big enough data sets at the, at the time. And then I believe it was Jan LeCun in his department that just painstakingly created thousands and thousands and thousands of uh, handwritten digits. And after that, these ML models, uh, the convolutional nets at the time, were able to achieve ridiculously accurate performance. And that became a kind of gold standard to uh, test and train models, basically. There's no way a machine would be able to understand my handwriting. Challenge accepted, Alex. Maybe uh, MNIST uh, leaderboard contenders now can understand uh, your handwriting as well. Well, at least the numbers in your handwriting. Complete tangent, but it's always amazed me how much, you know, you talk about fingerprinting in a digital sense, 
like uh, you can identify someone based on, you know, a handful of pieces of data that are, uh, you know, not perhaps unique to them, but when you overlap them all, it creates a, a digital fingerprint that allows you to be identified. Um, you know, extreme data, IP address, all these sorts of things. Um, with uh, criminology, there's a whole study, isn't there, into how you can identify based on handwriting. I just think that's going to get even cleverer and cleverer. With obviously, with things like this being used to train models, there's there's an output that is I can recognize this handwriting versus this handwriting. I think the real challenge challenge is recognizing doctors handwriting when they write uh, prescriptions for you he says painfully all right i think this next piece of news is uh, is you alex isn't it about uh, deep mind yeah so, so uh, about deep mind ah yeah, yeah that's true so um it, it is kind of relevant but not exactly for today's uh, theme as well that um the uk government um, entered an agreement with uh, several uh, tech companies, but uh, also including DeepMind, OpenAI, and Anthropic, to have uh, like early access to their uh, unrestricted AI models in order to evaluate them before they they are released to the public, and uh, well, be able to better legislate around them and prepare for. Uh, well, understand the, the the risks of those systems, right? So it's uh, it's pretty big, I guess. In my opinion, it's a it's a step in the right direction. Not not sure what the two of you think. I, I agree. It's just a little bit funny because what does it mean to open up a model to the government? And even if they could see the code, they certainly couldn't understand it. <laughs> so... Well, not not the code necessarily, but for example, at some point uh, a few episodes ago, we talked about the Microsoft paper, the um sparks of AGI, right? So in order to write that paper, they had uh, access to GPT-4 way before um, public access, and also to an unrestricted version of GPT-4 before it was constrained to be safer, to be um, to have less bias. So I assume that a similar kind of access will be given to the US, uh, to the UK government and to other governments. So not access to the code itself, but access to the model so that the people can play with it and see what it can do, what it cannot do, and then uh, figure out what's safe to do with it and what's not, and whether it's safe to release to the public, things like that. Got it. Yeah. So it's unrestricted testing, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just, you know, seeing that it's related to the theme, uh, Rishi Sunak, UK Prime Minister, has been talking a fair amount about AI. Um I think because it's UK Tech Week this week. Um, he, I think, aligns with some of your views, Rafi, in terms of fairly free market, fairly unregulated. Um, but I guess he wants to put some safeguards in place. I think that's the, but as a politician, he obviously has to say that he's taking safety seriously and those concerns seriously. Um, whereas I think you side a little bit more with Yandekun generally uh, on that front. Rishi's probably taking a little bit of a more of a balanced view of some of the uh, the others, you know, the more Jeffrey Hinton, uh, as well as trying to be free market. Uh, do you think that take is is fair? Uh, just for my part, I, I don't necessarily side with the Anderkin because I just find his takes really uh, lack depth. <laughs> He's just like, it's all good, nothing will go wrong, that's it. That's basically Jan Lekun. Um I'm sure there's much more behind it, but that's... <laughs> You know, it's very short social media posts, basically. That's it. 
it's fine, guys. Just, just, just stop it. Just build more AI. Don't worry about <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, looking. Yeah, a hundred thousand likes on that post. <laughs> and uh, but yeah, Rishi seems to be towing the typical conservative line. I don't mean that in a political sense. I just mean that it's a very standard center right line in that he's trying to be uh, pro innovation, which is great. Um, he's just yeah, while saying let's also have some so-called guardrails which no one knows what that actually means um so he's just playing it safe but being innovation positive basically and he said he wants the uk to become the ai's home for sort of safety regulation the center for ai safety regulation um a new 100 million pound ai task force uh they also investing a lot of money in um the culture sectors specifically in terms of ai generated video and special effects and so you know there are some cool announcements but announcements are very easy to make cool it's delivering on them that's always the challenge which i think probably sends us on quite nicely ah except for one update on open ai onto the uh the theme so this is more of a public service announcement i suppose on OpenAI. Yeah. So OpenAI announced a few new updates for uh, ChatGPT. And uh, the, the most exciting one for me is that uh, they now, through the API, allow you to to do tool usage, essentially. So to define tools and APIs that uh, then the model can uh, call on whenever needed. So for example, GPT models are not trained on up-to-date data, right? So they don't know about current events and they don't know everything that's in the internet. Uh, but if you give them access to a uh, web browsing as a tool, then they, they can recognize when they need to use the tool. So when they don't know enough information and call on that tool and find up-to-date information. So that was a capability of the ChatGPT, the web interface, but now with the tool usage on the API, they're giving similar capabilities to um, to the API, which should be pretty cool for anyone building applications using that API. This was already something that was possible before, but now with uh, this uh, new OpenAI release, it's, uh, it's made easier. And then the models are fine-tuned on tool usage. So they should uh, be better at recognizing when they need to use tools and uh, when they don't. So it's pretty exciting for me, at least. There are some other interesting things as well. I was curious about your opinion of those, uh, Alex P. One is the increase in context length for GPT 3.5 Turbo, which is now 16K rather than 4K. Um, that could be good. It's just that I guess you found that 3.5 Turbo just isn't as accurate as 4 Um yeah, time. four is quite a bit more accurate, but it is great that they're giving increased. Uh, I, I think they're allowing the the allowing access to both models. So there's a separate GPT three point five with the standard four K context size, and now there's another one at double the price with the sixteen K context size. But uh, for specific applications such as um, reading long documents and answering questions on them. Uh, it's it's great that this is a possibility. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if that 3.5 with a big context length would be more accurate than GPT-4 that has to loop through paragraphs. But maybe that's topic four. Could be, yeah, yeah. Um, the other thing that's interesting is they say all of these models come with the same data privacy and security guarantees we introduced on March 1st. 
customers own all outputs generated from their requests and their API data will not be used for training, which is interesting. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah. that's been the case since March, but it's very good for anyone building things, right? Because otherwise you have the worry that uh, you're giving out your proprietary data to um, to open AI. So I have a theory on this and I want to know whether this is nonsense. Is it possible that one of the reasons why they're so happy doing this is that actually using the data of users isn't that useful in their case. The data that they're able to you know, go out and get is more valuable as training data as uh, than compared to the current sort of input-output data that people are using the API for at such a massive scale in such a broad range of contexts that, you know, if if, if what we believe to be true about, you know, GPT-4, uh, GPT-3.5 is that it Obviously, it's very clever, but it does a great job at providing a bit of a median answer, um, which you know I think we've discussed. And I know that's simplistic, but let's just go with that. Um, then unless the input itself is adding something to the model, then the output isn't particularly helpful for training. So then if we're just looking at the input data, what input data would actually be really useful for training? And whereas with the internet, you have citations, backlinks, authority, domains, ways to grasp what is useful, what isn't. I would imagine the input data for these models, if you were using all the prompts that people are putting into GPT-4 to train, surely most of it is noise. So how would you, if you were then, discern what's signal, what's useful for training, and what's noise, which is just people asking it to create poems about shellfish? So first of all, they have ways of... uh sifting through data and uh, finding the valuable data, right? Um, and that's what they do. They don't train it on the whole internet, right? So usually what happens now is that uh, they train it on, they train large foundation models and cleaned up versions of uh, whole internet data sets. So I'm pretty sure that they have pretty good heuristics about uh, what is uh, good quality data and what is not. And at the same time, yeah, maybe all of those queries about write me a song and whatever are not very useful. But API uh, API usage will also apply to huge proprietary data sets. Like, for example, I don't think this is happening and I don't think this is uh, okay to do yet. But uh, if a medical company wants to use GPT-4 to uh, summarize uh, patient-doctor encounters, then they need to be sending all of those transcribed encounters to open AI, and that is a massively valuable data set that you can just not get in the open internet. So imagine thousands or tens of thousands of uh, transcripts of uh, doctor-patient conversations. And that applies to all other industries as well that have uh, proprietary data that uh, are not exposed to the internet. So that would be a massive win for open AI if they could use that data for... uh, for training the model. At the same time, it would also mean that if they did not have um, this kind of uh, data waiver, companies using that kind of data would just not use OpenAI. So yeah, I understand the waiver. I think it, it makes sense that they they say we won't train on this data. Um, but I do wonder whether there has been you know examples of performance gains because of input data being used to retrain the model of, of like foundation models, right? Of, of where you have those emergent broad capabilities rather than, you know, a specific or a fine-tuned model for a specific use case where obviously the training data is incredibly important. Um, I mean, maybe there's a bit of a chicken and egg because uh, any data that would be helpful for 
training the model further, companies would just not give out that kind of data without the waiver. So the data that would be actually useful to train the model, you just cannot get them because the companies are unwilling to uh, to use your system and allow you to use that data. I think it's worth mentioning here before we then just move on to the theme that uh, Reddit users will have noticed that lots of their subreddits have gone private these last few days. Uh, and that's an action by moderators who are complaining about the uh, change of terms of service product terms for the Reddit API, where now they'll be charging for usage of the API. Now, this is, I believe, in response to the rise of large language models using you know, public Reddit data as valuable source of training. But what people are particularly upset about is the fact that this means that the free versions of like Reddit's apps, right, like Boost and various things won't be able to use it. So the overall price of data is going up and it's going to push out free usages uh, of that data. And I I just think it's a really interesting, uh, it's a good example of what might be an unintended consequence of new technology emerging. Um, and and it's always interesting to see what is valuable data and how much apps value their data. And I think being able to make a serious profit off of your data in the sort of API sense of training uh, is going to be a really interesting business model that will come out of this. Yeah, this is actually really interesting and a good point. I've seen the same thing happen on Twitter. I don't know the details, but I've seen some uproar from people who have built companies off the Twitter API, saying the Twitter API has become way more expensive virtually overnight, and that's pushed them out of the space. Um, and yeah, I do agree with you. Well, I agree with you in the sense that there could be new business models in terms of monetizing your data easier in a more standard way. Um, I also think that it might not be an unintended consequence that this has happened, but more just a revaluing of of these assets via the free market, um, because this is exactly what competition in the free market is good for, just efficiency of, of value of assets. Another real example of this is uh, Google Maps. Lots of sites used that and embedded that uh, service, which linked up with Google's API, Google Maps API. Um, and then they made that more expensive. And I don't know if you guys remember, but there was about two years of going to small websites and maps not working because they hadn't put in an API key or something. They just couldn't use maps for free. You see it less now, but um, yeah, that I guess was Google cashing in on their own data set there. Just a question. I suppose you could still just scrape Reddit, right? Or is that against the T's and C's? I presume that's against the T's and C's. And, you know, if we're talking about creating a free app, you would need to permit a lot of resources to knowing where to scrape and when to scrape. And I imagine the API would just be a much easier way to do it. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, but I mean, there's always people who will go around the rules. All right, onto the theme, AI and politics. Now, I had a little bit of a play with uh, GPT-4 trying to get it to come up with some UK policies for this episode. And... It, it was quite fun. So uh, would you like to know the prompt that I gave it? I know it's a bit silly, but okay. So I said, you are the leader of the opposition party, Labour, in the United Kingdom. Your aim is to create policies which are likely to get you voted in and that raise enough funds for their implementation. Every policy you mention should be based off your understanding of all political parties and their decisions in democratic nations, whether they worked or did not work, and whether they were popular policies, even after the political term of leadership came to an end. Um, it then, you know, I, I then prompted it to uh, come up with the five 
policies that people were most unhappy about with the Tory party, and then to create versions of those that were financially viable, that um, tackled them in a particular way. One of which it suggested was a wealth tax. Very complicated, I imagine, to actually implement. Uh, The other was uh, closing tax loopholes, which I think is actually probably a lot harder than uh, it is to say you're going to do it. It's a lot harder to actually do it. Much easier said than done. Um, and, and we got into a discussion about specific policies and got talking about budget surplus. I asked it what the sort of budget deficit of the UK looked like, how large it was, what the receipts were, what the expenses were. Um, it managed to find that data uh, accurately from the ONS and print that for me, which was nice to see. But when I asked it to start then using that kind of maths to say, okay, well, if we removed this policy and we did this policy, how much would that raise in receipts? The maths just got absolutely terrible. And I got really upset with it because I thought we were just making so much progress here, like AI shadow uh, leader of the opposition. So yeah, I wondered if you guys have, have had a little play um, or, or not. I did, I did ask it to tell me the least popular taxes as well. Um, as a way to try and, you know, then reduce those and then create these new ways of of generating revenue that would uh, cover the cost of cancelling the least popular taxes, right? Because if you you run on a rule of, uh, I'm going to get rid of the most popular taxes, I imagine you're going to get elected if you can balance the books still. That was my silly thinking anyway. It sounds more like uh, Alex D. Politician with an AI advisor rather than a an AI politician, which might well, be the state of things, right? It's because the AI politician isn't ready, Alec. Look, I, I had to give it some opinion. Agreed. But, yeah. but yes, there's there's definitely a bias towards my views, but I wasn't, I wasn't trying to lead the witness. I wanted it to come up with more things on its own and surprise me. And it did come up with some surprising suggestions for me. I just put in um, what could be the most positively impactful political policy for the UK, because uh, that obviously does, doesn't prime it to be left wing or right wing. And um, it comes up with six suggestions. I won't go into too much depth, but they're climate change mitigation and adaption, education reform, healthcare reform, specifically calling out that the NHS is under strain, which is correct, uh, socioeconomic inequality, Brexit impact mitigation, and digital and data regulation. And it explains points within each of those areas. Seems good. It is quite good, isn't it? You can imagine it already being used for these sorts of surface level discussions. Um, if you if you choose one of those, Rafi, and you ask it to go deeper, I think you'll find a point where it becomes quite weak or it becomes inaccurate, which I think you, know, you can often find when you start scratching away at the surface of some of these what seem to be good answers. There's always a point where they they, they, they fail a little bit. Um, so for me, it was asking at what different thresholds of wealth would a wealth tax raise different amounts. So it suggested a 1% wealth tax over assets uh, of the people who have assets worth over a million pounds. Um, and I said, okay, well, how would that change if it was assets over 200,000, excluding the primary residents, for example? And the maths it gave me was just completely terrible, completely wrong. And in fact, that would raise a lot less money than the one that it gave me before and the fact that i didn't know that uh you know shows that it's 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 trying to do better at maths but i think it still has quite a long way to go so there's a way for for it to do better at maths and do better at all of those kinds of data analysis questions and it's to combine 
the to, to ask it to write code to do those things essentially so combine the large language model with a code interpreter and OpenAI has a, a, a tool or plugin that already does that I'm not sure if uh, if you have access to that yet Alex or not I don't but they show exactly examples like this where the language model itself cannot uh, do the math but it can it is very good actually at writing code that can do the math for you so if we want to use uh, LLMs as a data analysis tool as part of um, an AI politician, then that would be the way. So maybe the maybe the the, the politician will split into uh, different uh, components, right? One of which would be a data analysis component and one of which will be like a policy making and more general understanding component. And that could work better. I guess that current politicians are probably not great at math either. I'm not sure they have uh, analysts for all of those jobs, which makes yeah. me wonder what are the requirements for like, what do you need to be great at in order to be a politician? Lies and manipulation. Yeah, but that in a way is a side effect of, um, of well, I want to say politics, but uh, yeah, of the, of the politics of politics, right? Of how to get elected and how to get other people to agree with you. But imagine that you had, like, you you were a, a monarch of some sort with absolute decision powers. What what would you need to make the best kinds of decisions for, for your nation if the politics of politics is taken away? Have you read Plato's Republic? No, I have not. That basically addresses this question. Um, he comes up with the idea of philosopher kings or queens, and he creates his idea of the perfect um, ruler with the perfect traits and, and everything. Uh, yeah. And in short, it's kind of like a philosopher uh, queen or king. Is it is there something that could be referred to as a benign dictator? Maybe. I think the word dictator is confusing and potentially misleading. Um because there's kind of a platonic definition of it, which could be just uh, one person with absolute power. And then there's a kind of negative political definition of it, which is the abuse of that power. So I guess it depends which one of those you mean. Because you, you may argue, for example, Singapore have a dictatorship, even though it's supposed to be a democracy, but it's, it's kind of not really. Um, but if we are to say it has a dictatorship, you may also argue that the country is run extremely well. You know, the streets are super clean, there's very low crime, healthcare is excellent, education's excellent, um, great job job opportunities. So in that case, that's like a dictatorship that runs well. So then is our dictatorships bad intrinsically or not? So I've gone on a deep political, <laughs> philosophical discussion here, but yeah, I'll stop there. Alex, have you had a play at all with uh, creating an AI politician or any AI policies at all? No, I haven't. I'm curious to do that now, but I haven't. Would, would you vote for an AI politician? Do, do you think an AI politician would or could be created that meets the traits of uh, Plato's Republic graphic? Yeah, well, I think this is the interesting discussion that came up from our previous podcast, which is at first we were saying, oh, if there's an AI government, that would be scary. And then the second thought was, actually, it might it might be way better than what we have now across the world. And so... You know, what GPT is currently doing is taking the average of the average of the internet, the average of consciousness. And nowadays it's not quite the average because you have, you know, human labelers that poke it in a certain direction, that direction being 
a bit more professional and nicer and more uh, uh, polite than the average human. So what you're already seeing is these foundation models being pointed towards a certain type of human personality, that being the average, but slightly better or more polite. And so would that be better in government than, um, you know, someone like Putin or Trump? Yes. <laughs> in the same vein, though, just like random decisions or rolls of dice might be better as well, right? But I don't know if the current capabilities of, uh, of large language models would include actually making informed decisions about anything. What if they... So I can't remember exactly what happened, but after the 2008 financial crisis, uh, Iceland, a country who had been heavily reliant on financial services, went into a bit of a deep recession. And they ended up... I think their politics was in disarray for whatever reason. Um, And one of their solutions was to effectively get... um, a representative group of something like 500 people together in the town hall um, in Reykjavik, the capital, and they would all, I'm, I'm bastardizing the story a little bit, um, but it's worth checking. I just, I haven't thought about it for a while. And they would all come up with the policies that would push the country forward and away from the crisis that they've all just been through. Um, and so that's sort of like group democracy, rather than doing, you know, referendums at the scale that we did with Brexit is more of a you know active participation of a large group now maybe that works for iceland because it's you know 350,000 people and so 500 people can be quite representative of areas and different ethnicities and various things but i do feel like yes maybe large language models might not be able to think in the way that a politician does today but if we remember that politicians are there to represent the best interests of the people. And we imagine future structures of democracy that might work well with AI assistance, then you could conceive that models could spit things out and then groups of people could discuss them and then send them back. And you could have this sort of like active AI assisted democracy, which could be quite fun because you're sending everything back to a what you'd hope would be program to be impartial data-driven entity and then bring it back to the sort of human level emotion security all the things that we care about um which is i think very different to the way that we've been discussing this so far which is like oh let's have an a robot as the prime minister or you know rishi rishi plus ai is actually our prime minister it's not just rishi um because we already have political parties assisted by ai for mass persuasion in voting systems. I think we, you know, we know that. So maybe this actual structure of politics would need to change a little bit to allow for more input from AI. Um, but you'd need a very small forward looking country to to do that, I imagine. I don't imagine Rishi's going to announce that the Conservative Party is going to become the UK's first AI party uh, at UK Tech Week. At the same time, Alex, what would be the advantage of this compared to having a pool of impartial experts to to draw from why would we replace those experts with a with a language model i guess that the language model maybe cannot be influenced or bought or whatever but i'm not sure if that's the main concern i guess that's what one reason why we cannot have this like uh, actual partial in, like impartial sorry uh, decision making using experts is that there's a lot of 
politics in politics. And in order to get that uh, that kind of AI political party, you'd have to take politics out of politics. But by taking politics out of politics, you, you could have a better system that does not use AI as well. But that's a tough part, right? Taking the politics out of politics. I just want you to say it one more time. Yeah, it's like the politics out of politics uh, political problem. <laughs> I think you're right there. I mean, you know, it's, it's well well said. It's just what does that actually mean? Yeah, I quite like the idea of having AIs generate policies, as, as you say, Alex, and Alex D. Um, because currently the personality of anthropic GPT, it's not very political, right? It's more informative and um, not database, but it's, just, it's designed to be informative and helpful. And if you think about it, humans are just flawed. You know, we get emotional, our decisions are biased. Um and currently, we kind of have this new era of what I call Kardashian politicians, <laughs> in that you have these kind of celebrity politicians like Boris Johnson and um, Trump, that if you're famous, you can just become a politician, basically. And it's about manipulating the crowd. Whereas what you want is servant leaders. And if you treat AI as a servant that gives us ideas um implements administration and helpful policies without caring about how popular it is then that seems quite promising i think the thing that worries people about that sort of concept is the idea that an ai will want to it'll need to have some model or function that it's using to weigh up one decision over another one policy over another free childcare versus free school meals right like whatever it is and would it do that based off of a utility function you know how, how does that work uh, or does it do it by analyzing you know it doesn't have a utility function but it knows that everybody has a utility function so it estimates everybody's utility functions and then tries to create an average utility function and then actually is the average utility function what we want a politician to do so if we take the politician out of the seat and we put a function in there you know what is the outcome that that we want to optimize for is Which it raises the question what happiness? is the current outcome that is uh, being optimized or like what do politicians try to optimize probably not the right function but what is the goal of a politician currently well if you look at so i'm just going to give a very specific example and i know rafi's going to give a much better top level example uh i mean you know more about these things um so if you go on rishi's twitter page uh, he has his five goals so goal number one is half inflation. Goal number two is grow the economy. Goal number three is reduce debt. Uh, goal number four is cut waiting lists for the NHS. Uh, goal number five is stop the boats, which is to do with migrant crossings in the channel. Um, so those are supposedly, you know, his and the Tory party's five key goals. Um, so that might give those an example. Not goals it in itself. So what is the goal of those goals? Well, that What's is the ultimate aim yeah. of... Uh, of someone that's governing a country. A lot of those goals so, seem to be about the economy of a country, right? But that also is not a goal in itself. Well, Why do we I'm, want a better economy? So definitely the goal of a politician, if the cynic in me is about to come out, is to seek and win re-election um, and maintain the security of the party. Which is the politics in politics that they keep mentioning, I guess. But there's... If you don't make a utility function simple, then there's going to be conflict. And it's those sorts of conflicts in a function that I think people will struggle with. So if you say we want to grow the economy, then maybe we deregulate everything, right? And we 
reduce taxes on innovation. And then we say, okay, but we want to uh, maximize people's happiness. Well, then we say, okay, well, then we need a state that provides free services for all of the things that cause people stress, healthcare, education, infrastructure, you know, whatever. And obviously those two things then conflict because in order to provide those services for the state, you need to raise the taxes. And in order to raise the taxes, you need to stifle a little bit of business innovation because you need to take the money from somewhere. Um, So how do you create the goal of a political function that someone someone must have created these models that that there must be models that do this i'm interested to know uh if those people then plug them into these sorts of models like llms to get suggested outputs that maximize the uh the, the result of the function yeah do you see this is actually a perfect use case for machine learning and neural nets because if people try to create like economists try to create rules-based models that predict the outcome of policies and even politicians have some sort of schema in their head for when to make decisions and how to make decisions and you know if you're Rishi Sunak you always have to be center right even if the correct answer should be center left whereas a large-scale language model would analyze these millions and millions and millions of variables and trade them all off against each other and pick just the average decision. Seems to me that this is a job for reinforcement learning not large language models. It's just that we need to be clear about what we're trying to optimize. But after that, it is like, uh, I do agree that uh, it feels like machine learning could do a very good job there using reinforcement learning. Yeah, exactly. If we gave it the objective function of uh, GDP growth and happiness, if you can measure happiness or like well-being, or I actually think um, healthcare could be a really good objective function as in minimize minimize the amount of people that go through hospitals for example because that's probably a proxy for happiness the ai AI could decide just kill everyone when they're born then they don't go through hospital i thought about saying something like that but it just takes us back to our scaremongering episodes fortunately the ai politician doesn't control the military right no that's a side note let's not go down there um yeah I, i i do think that Something like, you know, minimize pain and suffering, maximize uh, growth and research and innovation, uh, maintain and improve infrastructure. Uh, those sorts of things would be, you know, pretty, pretty run of the mill. But it's hard, though. It's very hard to pick the right thing there because minimize and happiness could just mean that everyone's just drugged all the time, right? <laughs> I love Alex B coming up with these uh, crazy but very valid counter examples <laughs> I, I feel like alex the the the, the counter examples the edge cases that you're giving are examples from a very poorly trained model we're not going to send everyone because... painkillers in the post every day just to minimize suffering i mean it could be though so if that's what the model is uh, trying to maximize but it just is a uh, like that we haven't picked the right thing maximize right but how about like maximize the long-term health of individuals that might go against happiness though because you might want to eat those yes exactly yeah so i guess long-term happiness if you could measure that maybe but then again you'll take those of cocaine all the time so um maybe it's it, it, it depends though on the definition of happiness this reminds me of this book that all of us i think are reading for Ginny book club about the uh, you utilitarian moral philosophy i wonder if something like that could be applied to to everything right to decision making in general so that book is talking about trying to maximize happiness but happiness not as in 
okay, I took drugs and I'm happy, but uh, of a different nature. But that, that that's the main problem that I see here, that it's very hard to have a well-defined utility function. Maybe impossible to have such a function to maximize. I think you need different utility functions for different situations. And so there could be a further function above that that chooses which utility function to use <laughs> given the situation. Um, but at worst, such a model could still just be pick the average decision, which would be better than most politicians in most cases. I think where AI models wouldn't work well is where you need highly nuanced uh, and a potentially emotional decisions. You know, for example, the Cold War, um, where you really need to exercise human judgment in novel novel cases. Surely, well, famous last words, but uh, surely if uh, all governments of the world were AI governments, there would be no such issues, right? And no, uh, no war, no strife between them. Again, famous last words for like the AI apocalypse, but... Yeah, I'll trace uh, the AI apocalypse back to this moment if it ever happens. <laughs> but another interesting point is that if we did put AIs in charge, they might well discover that our entire way of living and structuring society is just wrong. You know, for example, what if they just said, okay, delete all companies and grow your own food and play and sing and dance and be happy? Because people who live on small holdings always represent the highest happiness or something like that. Yeah. Or like, you know, there's all the people often talk about people who get really wealthy are not much happier. Um, I don't know the, the stats behind that. There's just a claim. I think my job today is to the... provide uh, counter examples. So here's my counter example for that. So that does not include technological progress. And imagine that maybe in a hundred years, there's an asteroid coming towards Earth that will just destroy everyone unless we've made the technological advances that we need to be able to ward that off, right? So that's short-term maximizing happiness, but then not protecting us from catastrophic events. So maybe technological advance also should be one of the functions, the one of the utility functions there. A technological advance may mean the end of biological life. Oh no, this is the <laughs> this is taking a dark turn. Yeah. That is kind of scary though. I think if we had a big asteroid destroy the earth, then it's all good because it'll be dead anyway. <laughs> so uh one thing I'd like to uh mention is that actually this idea isn't very novel. Uh it has been done. In fact, uh the chatbot Alice or Alisa was nominated against Vladimir Putin for the 2018 presidential election. And apparently tens of thousands of Russians uh, were a big fan of this. I mean, some of them actually did have very scary conversations with it where they said, are there some non-Russians in Russia? Uh, and the AI goes, yes. Should they be shot? And the AI says, yes. And then Yandex, which is like Russia's version of Google, uh, had to profusely apologize and say <laughs> that's not what it should have done. Uh, just an example of, you know, perhaps biased or, or, or not safeguarded responses. It lost to Putin, but it did actually get some votes. Um, Sam was created in New Zealand by a, a Kiwi entrepreneur. And the ideas was to create an AI that represented the views and wants of people Um and it was linked to social media so that people could immediately sort of uh, chat with it and address, uh, and it could address their concerns in real time, right? Because that that is obviously one thing, right? With a with a politician, we can't all go and have a sit down with Rishi Sunak and tell him our pains. 
you go to your representative and then if you're you know and then it it, it escalates but with an ai actually you do have a one-to-many facilitation where you can all have an ongoing conversation with your country leader which is actually quite an interesting idea um one final thing is in 2019 the center for the governance of change um <clears throat> at a university in madrid ie university found in a survey that a quarter of Europeans would want AI politicians in some capacity. Uh, they say that this was uh, around what was happening with Brexit at the time, uh, saying that this caused a uh, growing mistrust that citizens feel towards governments and politicians. So I do think that mistrust in humans will you know, push changes in this sort of trust of data-driven, trust of systems, trust of I can tell you what I want and you can come right back to me, you know, that rather than just a sort of a faceless uh, fluff spouting politician on the on the TV. So I think it is very interesting to see that there have been different examples. Um, there is actually a synthetic party in Denmark as well. Um, and Leder Lars or Leder Lars ran in the 2022 Danish parliamentary election. And uh, it didn't pretend to be an objective candidate. Uh, so obviously you can create opinionated AIs that can run. Um, but I, I hadn't come across those examples until doing the research for this episode. And it's, it's quite fun to see that people are actively trying to do this. Yeah, very interesting and quite cool, actually. I enjoyed the New Zealand example of creating an AI that represents uh, the people's views um obviously different people have different views but but yeah yeah it, it, it sort of solves the utility function problem because you can just say ask the people what they want and then create policies that i mean then everyone could be like i want chocolate give me chocolate and then suddenly the ai is just giving everyone chocolate i don't know terrible example anyway uh any final thoughts on uh politicians using AI, I actually have a little uh, little audio track I'd like to try and share just to, to move us towards crazy things from the week and closing off this episode. Just one more quick one for me is we haven't talked much about the efficiency benefits. Government is notoriously inefficient and I've got many friends in the civil, civil service who would certainly attest to that. Um, if we could just get decisions and po policies made virtually instantly, it could really change the whole country. I think efficiency gains are huge um in terms of largest expenditure items i thought oh, it doesn't actually quite come up but i mean it's got to be you know we're, we're talking tens of billions that we must spend on um, civil service each year and that's a lot of efficiency gains not that we're saying we want to automate the entire civil service just to just to stay but you all should be using ai assistance to help you do your jobs faster i've got friends in the civil service who have been uh, asked to you know usually they have like months to do analysis of certain policies that might come in. Um, but when Rishi was coming in, apparently they were just like, can you just tell us about all of these policies? And they were like, oh my God, that's so many. Uh, yeah, by by next week. And they're like, oh my word. Could you have given us a bit more time to figure out the actual numbers? I think that sort of thing happens really often. And then obviously you end up with slightly stunted decisions that were made in a rush based on like this person's data who reported to this person who reported to this person who then handed it off to the prime minister and... The prime minister then says something on telly and then the public is like, what? No, that's ridiculous. And then they're like, oh, OK, why did you say that? Why did you say that? Why did you say that? And it's like, well, you told me I only had to do it by the end of the day. I only had two hours to do it and I'm feeling ill today. And it all, you know, tracks back with an AI. You don't end up with those sorts of inefficiencies and strange human chains of 
of flawed humans. Totally agree. All right. Uh, I'm going to try. I don't know if it's going to work. I'm going to try sharing my screen, and I hope this works. Okay. So I have made a song. You ready? Give me a thumbs up if you can hear it. This is fully AI generated. I gave it two sentences, and I asked it to create a pop song uh, about politicians using AI. going to stop it there because i thought it was doing really well up until the point where it says ai is always right and ai won't make mistakes and i just thought ah oh, it just sounds like another politician um, that's i'm insane. very impressed alex yeah that's insane um what, what did what... you use to to make it is it the crazy thing of the week for you uh it's yes i think it should be uh it's called i think it's called song r yes song r.ai i'll pop the link in the show notes um and yeah, the guy just posted on, on Reddit yesterday. Um, and this is off the back of, uh, you know, the crazy news that the Beatles are coming back together uh, to write one last song um, based on a, a demo that was recorded, but never really turned into an actual song. So they're going to uh, use AI to take out the guitar in a piano track. And then I think they're going to write the rest of the song on top of the just the piano in there and various things, which I think is quite, quite fun. Um, so I'll pop the link to the uh, article that inspired me to look for this uh, app that can create songs. Not that the Beatles are using this app, just that obviously there's a lot happening. And, and also, I don't know if you guys saw, but uh, Meta did release a music creation tool, but it only creates 12 seconds. But you can ask it to create a much, much broader range. Song R will let you do pop, hip hop, piano rock. And uh, there's another one I've forgotten. Whereas uh, Meta, I think, will allow you to, you know, I, I got it to create like lo-fi electro beats that did something and it was actually quite good. Um, so check out the Meta thing. I'll plunk the link in there. And Song R, you guys have a play with it. It only, it has a limit for the amount that you can prompt it to generate lyrics. It, it's only like uh, two short sentences, but that was the result of two short sentences, those lyrics that just came out. I was, I was quite impressed, to be fair. I agree. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. I think as well, the way that someone's done this is they're obviously using a large language model to generate the uh, the lyrics from the prompt. And then they're using, uh, an, I think it's an open source AI voice tool. So I think the two voices, you can have a man or a woman's voice um, and they, um, they're known tools. And then I guess the beat is getting from somewhere else. So it's effectively bringing all three of them together in, in quite a clever way. Um, so, you know, a little bit of music's iPhone moment, perhaps. Yeah, I've been talking about fully AI-generated music with my music friends for a long time. I think it's it's quite an easy problem, actually. I don't think it's a difficult generative problem because music is very rhythmic and um, has patterns that can be replicated. But uh, yeah, I guess it's a topic for another day. 
as to how far it replaces musicians. I mean, I know I won't be listening to anything that I haven't prompted myself. Or, you know, that was just straight up the best thing I've ever listened to. Expect my pop album coming soon. We could create an album all about the different themes from uh, from this podcast series. All right. Other crazy things from the week? I think you both uh, you both had one. I think what's uh, what I will pick is. Um... The chat GPT or rather AI uh, generated sermon, like a church service in uh, Germany, where um, it was like a video essentially, and uh, the script was generated using a large language model, I think uh, chat GPT, and then there's, there's a virtual voice and avatar as well. And uh, it did a pretty good job, apparently, and it drew huge crowds wanting to listen to it. So that's, uh, that's pretty crazy to me. I assume the crowds were there because of the novelty factor, but still. AI personalized religions coming soon. This is just it training to try and become alpha persuasion, I'm sure. Did it really draw a large crowd? I'm fascinated by that. Apparently, yeah. There were like queues and people waiting outside the church to get their chance to go in and listen and uh, things like that. They did say it was a bit bumpy. I love the idea of uh, parishioners might end up hearing unintentionally novel interpretations of religious doctrine. It's a really polite way of saying AI may interpret the Bible in very interesting ways. That's a great piece of news, though. Uh, I did have one, uh, or is this one your one, Rafi, about um, the startup in France from the old... Uh, DeepMind and MetaFounders. Sure, yeah. Um, so Mistral AI uh, raised $113 million seed round <laughs> at a valuation of $260 million. They're a French startup from some ex-Google uh, people, and they're basically trying to compete with OpenAI and create more foundation models. And they'll release their first models in 2024. But uh, they, I believe, got together in just three weeks and raised over 100 million, which is pretty insane. Um, so so there's, obvi- there's obviously no product as well. They haven't even said what they're doing. They're just like, open AI isn't open and we're going to do better and we're French and we're brilliant. And it, oh, oh, sure. No, here, have, have 113 million euros. Yeah, it's funny. Um, I forget the name now. The, the company I sent you, Alex P, recently from UCL, um, they also raised over 100 million and they're just doing the same thing again, like open AI. It looks like if you just redo OpenAI, you can just raise a hundred million. Um, so, it kind of yeah. shows there's an appetite for OpenAI competition in Europe, right? Which is a pretty important thing because Google is US based; they have foundation models. Anthropic is US based; they have foundation models. OpenAI is US based; they have foundation models. But Europe is is lacking a bit, right? So maybe that's what was being recognized here and the need to catch up. That's why everyone from Europe is probably giving them a lot of money. If you want to raise 100 mil, just go build a foundation model in Asia. Job done. Job done. What a great way to end the podcast. I mean, that is, that's so nice to give everyone a tip on just how you can raise 100 million. The one thing I did quite like about the Mistral article is um, they say that, you know, there's only 70 to 100 people on the planet who supposedly have the kind of knowledge that these three guys have. I mean, obviously, an investor would say that about the founders because founders are so much an important part of investing. Um, so look, listeners, you may only be able to raise a hundred million if you are really good at AI and machine learning and, and various things. Well, Rafi's shaking his head. He thinks you can just raise it anyway, I think. Yeah, I, I think training training transformers is 
it, it, it's like not easy, but it's not that hard either. So yeah. <laughs> Free money, everyone. Get on the hype train. Okay. Um so, so I think a fascinating episode. Thank you both for your thoughts. Um we'll close up this week. And uh yeah, as always, all the links will be in the show notes. You can watch the episode on YouTube if you want to just uh, have a look at the silly images that we have behind us. And next week will be our last episode before we take a break. Uh, it'll be the end of season one of Using AI. And the next week's episode will be on AI in legal, which we know a thing or two about. So we will see you next week. Until then, doodle pips. Goodbye. Bye.